for the longest time, we thought that all that RNA did was be the next step in the sequence and the RNA itself gets read and turned into a protein. And that the proteins were the real workers of the body. There are 20 amino acids and each of them are quite different. Chemically, they look very different. And so they will have different chemical reactions with different things. But chemistry is a very, there's a, there's a phenomenon called pi stacking, which is where as a protein folds back over itself several times, and these rings will stack up into like these columns and these dispersion forces hold them in place. And that gives the protein a lot of structure, but it is highly dependent on your local environment. So the same amino acid in a different chemical environment, meaning different amino acids nearby, will do a very different thing. That's just the, the laws of physics. Welcome back, everyone. This is Technocracy. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into protein folding and some of its applications in drug discovery and synthetic biology, although much more of an expert on the drug discovery side than the synthetic biology. I'm with my co-host, AJ. AJ, do you want to kick us off with uh, what you're thinking about at the moment? Yeah, so I just ordered my BP5000 stack for, for Blueprint and Brian Johnson, and I've been following the Discord, not frequently, just sort of tuning into what's happening and it seems like there's a lot of logistics issues with getting blood tests and just delivering things and i think they didn't expect the complexities that came with it like good on them for you know inviting australians germans all kinds of people from all around the world to get in but they made it really hard for themselves to actually do this thing so i feel really bad about that no i, I love that that they did that because so often the latest cool stuff is always like u.s only and as someone who doesn't live in the US, it sucks. Yeah, yeah. It has been pretty cool, though. I think we're still waiting on updates to see if they're going to get a phlebotomist. Is that what it's called? Something like that. The blood blood donny. Let's call him blood donny. Blood donny. <laughs> um, they're trying to find the person that takes the blood and do the blood test and like send it back to the US for testing. I think the shipping for the other stuff is fine. Like the olive oil that they have, one of the harvests is in Australia, right? Another one's in Mexico. So I think it is not too bad to get that to us. But I'm not sure exactly what's in the stack. So I'll find out. Maybe I'll do a show and tell when I actually get it and just show you guys what's in the stack and give Brian Johnson some free marketing. I can't tell how important the olive oil is because he talks about it so much that I also worry about just because it's the one thing he's managed to like really get operational in terms of like, you know, creating it and selling it and, and, and easily getting it everywhere. I'll do my Brian Johnson meal here. This is my take on the nutty pudding and the green giant. I turned it into like a protein smoothie because I really fucking hate the taste of the green giant. And so hiding it in protein helps a little bit. That's your nutty, nutty giant, your fusion. My giant nut. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Moving quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, anything top of mind for you? I think this week's been a big week for Apple. Like, Apple Vision Pro is everywhere. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I've been watching some of the videos, watching some YouTubers, like, use it for fun and then use it for reviews. I watched the Marcus Brownlee review. It seems really interesting. 
I'm not willing to spend that much money to play around with it. So maybe maybe a bit later. I think it's a, like 5k US. Right? Yeah. No, it's like, I think it's entry price is like three and a half US. Yeah. I think I converted it. It was like five, six K AUD, which I don't think I'm willing to shell out at this point. And to be honest, it's weird. It buried the news that Neuralink had its first human trial, which I thought was interesting. Like that was cool. And then the Apple Vision Pro just like completely decimated any news that Elon Musk had this week, uh, which is surprising. It's usually not the case. Do you reckon it's going to be useful? Like... From what you've seen, is it going to be like this gimmick thing where it's like an iPad and you have it for a little while, you play with it, you get used to that one app and then it sits in your drawer and you never use it again? Or like, is it going to be actually used? So far, I think it's quite gimmicky. However, the spatial tracking seems really cool. So some of the use cases I saw was like someone cooking, they could put a timer on top of each pot, so they know which pot is going to be ready when. They had like a YouTube video on the side of Gordon Ramsay, like teaching them how to cook. And then like just something on the side to like play with. And I was like, that's pretty cool. The, the, the next level is going to be using some kind of generative AI system so that Gordon Ramsay teaching you is actually like a live experience. The Gordon Ramsay's can should put up in your home AI that just swears at you the whole fucking time and then stresses you out and gives you like the real chef experience. Like a hologram, basically, right? It just like pops up and he's just like next to you. He's like pointing at stuff. Yeah, that's so cool. Like, like that's going to that's gonna happen. That's not like crazy future sci-fi. In principle, we could probably do something very approximate to that today yeah exactly i think it's going to come down to the devs to see what kind of apps they build right so it's now into the ecosystem's hands let's see like what comes out of it what are your thoughts on that and also the Neuralink stuff the new memes that have come out the Apple Vision pro i think they're pretty great i think my favorite one so far was these two guys sitting in a restaurant eating together and they have their actual visions on they're obviously not paying attention to each other and as a result like they're it's that classic sort of Phone situation set up. You see two friends in a, you know in a restaurant just looking at the phones, but the caption is you know just two friends, not a phone in sight. Um, I love the mean content, but more seriously, just for, um, I think it's gonna. There are certain use cases that I'm excited to see, like that I might consider getting one for, like long cold flights, being able to have like a full screen to yourself to be able to black everything else out. My biggest concern is not whether it's going to be useful. I could totally see myself sitting at a desk and using this all day. My concern is like stream. I haven't done much digging into it, but despite what it can trick your brain into thinking is depth. At the end of the day, your eyes are fundamentally just focusing on pixels that are right in front of your eyes. And I don't know, that just sounds like a recipe for disaster and myopia. Like staring at screens a meter away from us is already known to be pretty bad for your eyes i can't imagine five centimeters being better <laughs> just because it's high fidelity i think that'd be an interesting episode idea we could probably dive into the science science around it maybe get an optometrist on board and like you know really look into how that might impact you that's cool that's a cool point though. i never thought about that it's surprising to me how how little it's come up i i've i think i've seen one guy post about it and all he did was have the sort of like it was more like a breakdown of how your eye focuses given the depth of the screen and less like how this is possibly going to be bad. But yeah. we'll see. I don't know. I'm generally an optimist. Fair enough. So I have one thing I want to talk about right before you get into the protein folding. And this is actually way more technically complex than anything you're going to talk about. And I want to talk about this sort of thing here. So 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with the with the sushi soy sauce containers, the little fishies, and you like open it up and then you put it in your in your uh, sushi. Is that what you meant to do? I just eat them directly. Oh, yeah, yeah. You eat the plastic as well. Yeah, and all, all the vitamins is in the skin of the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the skin of <laughs> So today I looked at this and I was like, I've never wondered like who came up with this? Where did it come from? So I went into a little bit of a deep dive into this soy sauce container. Do you know anything about it? Do you know anything about the history of this little fishy? Should I? It's so random. So in 2008, this this guy started a company called Little Soya, which was a soy sauce company. And do you know Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas? Very famous hotel. No, of it. Okay. It's where the hangover is actually based in. Like that's the hotel that they're in. So he goes to one of the F&B people at, at Little Caesars and they start talking about the fact that the soy sauce tastes so bad. And so they try to reinvent the soy sauce, but at the same time, they try to come up with a cuter, nicer packaging for it. So they're the ones who actually developed this this fish in 2008. So they're the ones who came up with it. That feels weirdly recent. Well, I know that's 16 years ago, but I feel like that's been there my whole life. But certainly I have memories pre-2008 as much as I wish I did. Yeah, so somehow it's been like a global sensation since then, and it's now become the standard for a lot of sushi bars. And then I went into a deep dive into sauce packaging, because I was like, how did the other kinds of sauce packages come about? And I found a pattern for the very first like single-serve condiment packaging in 1955. And let me, let me share my screen. Someone patented that? Yeah, 1955. And it's so blurry. This is the only photo I can find of it. I'm going to go digging a little bit later. Maybe I'll find it. But this is the pattern. And essentially, the point of it is that when you open the package, you don't want the pressure to be too high, where it just like flies out. So by constricting it to like a smaller passage, it doesn't fly out of the, the source package. So that way, it doesn't spill all over your shirt and stuff like that. However, when they tried it for soy sauce and like less you know, viscous sort of liquids it just sort of flew out really quickly but it works really well for ketchup mustard things like that well that's 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 so weird because like all the ketchup single serve things i've ever seen don't do this you just just rip the whole freaking thing off and squeeze it like it so there has been innovation since then innovation on the on the source packet source packaging yeah this is the original deep tech so yeah this is this is the little soya so this is the very first soy sauce container and then we have the dip and squeeze which was an innovation by Heinz and essentially you can peel it back to dip into the ketchup or you can tear off the top cap and then squeeze it so you can do either or it gives you double way of like two ways of like using your sauce however apparently the number one sauce packaging for single serving is in Australia where the best innovators of sauce packages which is awesome I'm glad that we're in a country I'm proud I'm proud and sad and I'm sure you've seen this before. Oh, it's not loading properly. This one. I'm done, yeah. Yeah, it's got that little beak, and then you fold it, it snaps off, and then you squeeze out the sauce. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was our innovation. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of innovation to be done in the sauce space. So if anyone's looking into deep tech, definitely look at single sauce. Deep, deep sauce. <laughs> Um, anyway, that was my morning. I spent about 30 minutes looking into to sources after I had sushi. Then you came online and I had to start this episode. So. Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to segue from that. <laughs> right. 
I would also like to comment though, that proper soy sauce is meant to be quite viscous, like not as viscous as ketchup. It's meant to be fairly thick. Okay. Interesting. I did not know that. You can do a test. Anyway, I, I was like researching it like, oh, maybe I'll do a full episode on like sauces. And then there was not much content. So I was like, yeah, I could probably. <laughs> do you remember those, those squeezy Australian ones? Do you remember like as a kid, maybe this was just me, but like you squeeze all the sauce out, but the sauce is the tastiest part because it's I mean, probably full of sugar and sodium. I think you're just trying to suck the sauce out of that little beak break. Or did you just say, that's it. I'm happy with what I got. I, I want to back you here, but I did not did not do that. <laughs> well, every last morsel of that sauce. Yeah, it is crazy though. I remember, yeah, it was out when we were kids. So clearly the innovation has been there for a while. I'm surprised that other countries haven't adopted it as readily as Australia has. I just feel like if you asked me when that fish had been developed, I would have said pre my living memory because I don't have a memory of eating sushi without those little fish back. Yeah, but we must have not eaten sushi as like, yeah, primary school kids. Probably started in high school, which is when like this all came out. But it must have been distributed pretty quickly. Like from day one, 2008, must have gone global within like, you know, 12 to 36 months, I'm guessing. Yeah, man. No global financial crisis for the sauce industry. Yeah. Amazing market. I was trying to find out who the largest suppliers of these little fishies are. Could not really find too much stuff. Okay, so so it's not like like the the zippers where it's like one guy nailed it and then that's the only company that does this anymore no because uh, little sawyer is still on the wordpress site and they don't even own the domain so it's littlesawyer.wordpress.com maybe i'm judging them based on the website but it doesn't seem like like multinational brand that's like figured out all this stuff and it's got a lot of distribution so i think they just got stopped that the idea was stolen probably didn't get as much credit as he deserves and yeah, now it's all out, all out there. Okay. The point of this episode was to deep dive into a single topic. And so we're going to do two episodes like this, at least in the near term. One, I'm going to, I guess, host an AJ's thing and be the confused person and ask me lots of questions that are insightful and, and deep and expresses intellectual paralysis. And then we're going to do a role reversal in the next episode. And he's going to deep dive into something that I know nothing about. And I'm going to act like a, an intelligent child. So... Yeah, protein folding is what we're going to talk about today. But before we jump into folding and, and what that is and why it's done, we should probably talk about proteins. So I know that, well, I, I would guess that everyone understands or has heard that you know, humans have genes and genomes and DNA. So DNA itself, in an oversimplified kind of way, doesn't really do anything. It just sits there. It's just the sort of like the rule book. But your body then reads this DNA and turns it into RNA and then some RNA does stuff. In fact, most RNA does stuff. So the, the RNA molecules that are floating around in your, your cells and your body will go out and they'll interact with things and have an effect on, on you as a person. But for the longest time, we thought that all that RNA did was be the next step in the sequence and the RNA itself gets read and turned into a protein. And that the proteins were the real workers of the body. Now that last part is still true. The proteins kind of from our perspective at the moment, the real workers of the body, they, they do everything. If, you, if you're jumping into biology for the first time, the, one of the most confusing things for me was that everything is a goddamn protein. So you try to figure out all the bits and bobs in your body and how they all work. And the very first thing you hear is, well, this is a protein and this is a protein and that is a protein. Are you, are you challenging the notion that 
RNA is simply just a mechanism to transport data and then create a protein? Like, does it do more than that? So that was what we originally thought it was. So uh, we, we as an industry, not, not me. Can I also say that I remember, I remember DNA polymerase purely because there was this like pickup line, which was like, babe, are you a DNA poly polymerase? Because I want to unzip your genes, right? Because that's what it does. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> is that true? Is that, is that still... Is that still the case? DNA polymerase unzips yeah, genes? I don't, I don't think humans have evolved that quickly since you learned that pickup line, such that that's no longer true. We won't go into how genes get rid of because that's a whole freaking PhD in and of itself. But we'll talk about protein folding, which is only a few PhDs. And so DNA is made of base pairs, ADCG. RNA is also made of base pairs, so it sort of maps one-to-one. -one. And then several base pairs grouped together encode for a single amino acid. And there's only 20 amino acids. Again, lots of simplifications here. There's always edge cases in biology. So 20 amino acids, let's say that. And what happens is that they, there are these long strings, right? So they can be, you know, a thousand amino acids long, let's say. And what they do is they, they fold up and they clump together and they form a certain shape. And that shape, for the most part, dictates everything about how this protein is going to function. You know, if there's a, if this protein interacts with another molecule it's going to do that at a certain site on that three-dimensional shape and so if that site's not visible or it's not available then it, it won't be able to have that function but if it's very readily available then it will have that function some proteins are purely structural so they're just there to give your cells shape for example like scar tissue proteins and so really their whole function is just to have a certain shape there are enzymes which essentially induce chemical reactions in your body and they have to take on a very specific shape so that they can bind to the thing that they're meant to react with and then actually do the reaction. So I've got a little um, a little picture of a protein for anyone who hasn't seen these pictures before. So this is this is a simplified view of a protein. It's called the ribbon view, and it's one of the most common ways of looking at proteins. And for the most part, proteins have three shapes. They have these little spirals that you can see. Those are called alpha helices. So this little blue guy here is an alpha helix, and that's where the amino acids sort of join together in this spiral. And then you have regions like this one over here, which they sort of form these long strands that group together to make sheets. So these are called beta strands and the sheet is called a beta sheet. So which, which protein are you looking at right now? Right now I'm looking at the VHL and H2-alpha complex, which is one of these really cool protein complexes that's um, part of how your body can degrade certain things. And it's also around hypoxia. I use it as a model protein because it's nice and complex because this particular complex has, I think like five different molecules in it and a couple of different types of molecules. So when I'm playing around with building these renders, I like to use it as a, a reference system. So these long bits, like this big purple bit on the edge, that is usually considered a disordered region or these little loops that you see flying around like, like this one here. doesn't really have much of a design shape. We, we call these disordered regions. And so very broadly speaking, that's what a protein looks like. And it's broken up into these three, three groups, alpha helices, beta sheets, and disordered regions. And for a long time, one of the big challenges, and still today, one of the big challenges is figuring out, given an amino acid sequence, which I can 100% determine from your DNA. So if I look at a, a, a gene, which is a series of, of DNA-based pairs, I can know more or less exactly what amino acid sequence that's going to get re like turned into in your body. And so the, the trick is, can I figure out what shape the protein is going to 
turn into just by looking at the sequence. So just from the sequence, can I predict what the shape of the protein is going to be? And that's been an outstanding challenge in, I guess, what you might call structural biology decades. And there are these big challenges. There's a whole different series of different benchmarks that have been active for many, many years around, you know, who's going to do the best prediction. And for maybe the, until about 10 years ago, most of these algorithms were physics-based or heuristic-based. So people were trying like design, manually design rules for when different groups of amino acids might turn into helices versus sheets. And we didn't really get very far. We were really bad at doing this. And then along comes deep line. And I think a lot of people have heard of DeepMind. Out of nowhere, DeepMind developed, or wasn't out of nowhere, but sort of seemingly out of nowhere in terms of the step function in, in how good protein folding became. They developed this model called AlphaFold. And AlphaFold kind of blew everyone out of the water because it was a deep learning model that could just directly from a sequence predict a protein structure. But it still wasn't very good. And then several years later, they produced AlphaFold, which was dramatically better. So good in fact that it replaced existing techniques for trying to figure out what proteins look like. So nowadays, AlphaFold 2 is like the state of the art. It's what the vast majority of computational scientists in this space, even non-computational scientists, will use to try and figure out what a protein looks like. And so that was kind of a game changer for the industry. And since then, AlphaFold 3 has been discussed, but not released. So they've developed new versions, AlphaFold 1 and AlphaFold 2 both were open source, so everyone could use them. And, and that's part of why they've proliferated so rapidly throughout the ecosystem, I, I think, other than obviously just being really freaking good. And the main innovation that AlphaFold 2 brought to the table over other deep learning models was that it considered something called an MSA. So that's short for multiple sequence alignment. So traditionally, how you would try and model the shape of a protein is you would look at the shape of a protein that you already knew, which I'll, I'll discuss how we know that in a second, where you'd say, well, here's protein A, and I already kind of know what protein A looks like. And here's protein B, and there are regions of protein B that are very, very similar to protein A in terms of the amino acid sequence. So the little sentences that make up what this protein should look like, the sort of like parts of it that are the same as other proteins. And you basically just zombie that together. So you'd find a protein that's like the maximum common amino acid sequence, and you'd say, what do you look like in that area? And you just cut that out and you place it in, you know, in front of you. And then you'd go and do that for as many different proteins as you can. And you'd Frankenstein this thing together and you'd be like, ah, here's my protein. And then you might do a little bit of simulation to try and get it to relax a little bit and see what shape it moves into. And basically AlphaFold2 did that. So it, it kicked off its prediction by doing a multiple sequence alignment and looking at the structures of similar proteins that had similar uh, sequence regions. And what was really interesting about that was there's this, I wouldn't say competitor, but I would say competitor um, to DeepMind in terms of protein folding, which is the Baker Lab, or I think they're actually called the Institute for Protein Design. And they had been developing this system called Rosetta Fold, which was basically all these tools and technologies associated with protein design. And as soon as DeepMind published their blog, which didn't go into much depth at all, about protein folding and how their AlphaFold 2 actually achieved the results that it achieved. They just talked at a very high level that they used this MSA data as one of the inputs. Within like two weeks, the Institute for Protein Design had published a, a model that was within like three to five percent of the performance of AlphaFold 2 just by taking that, that in. And I love these kinds of examples because 
it's a demonstration of an idea that once you hear it, for someone in the industry, it's such an obvious idea. So obvious that it would take a bunch of students in a lab two weeks to wrangle together an entirely new protein folding model and achieve within 5% performance of, of the hidden unpublished model that no one really knows what it looks like. Because once you realize, oh, I should be using MSA data, the next steps are kind of obvious, or at least somewhat obvious to someone who's, who's an expert in the space, but you can get a good approximation for it. And I'm not sure when they intended to release AlphaFold 2, but maybe they did it because Rosetta Fold achieved such you know, close performance, but they, they ultimately ended up releasing it. So I'm going to pause for your super insightful questions, AJ. So let me try and see if I understand this. You can get an amino acid sequenced from DNA, right? But, and, and we know what the sequences look like. What we, what we don't know is like what patterns will emerge when it starts folding into itself, right? What shape will it take on in yeah. 3D space? And so the way that we currently try and figure that out is that certain parts of the amino acid sequence in protein A may look like, like a, a pleated sheet and another part looks like a helix and like there's just like you can then try and copy paste that and Frankenstein it together to figure out what protein B might look like based on all these different examples of what those sequences have looked like in the past, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's called homology modeling. Yeah. Okay. Does an amino acid sequence that has the exact same sequence, essentially, will that always look the same from a structure perspective? Absolutely not, which is why homology modeling is not very good. Do we know why it looks different in different proteins? At a super fundamental level, yes, which is just that if you're in a different environment, so like it may be the same set of sequences, the same set of atoms, but they're surrounded by atoms of a different kind. And so they're just going to have different forces exerted on them and they're going to move in a different way. But that's a very low level explanation. And it doesn't give you any good high-level understanding of why this is the case. But for the most part, we don't really know. Okay. And then what's the second type of modeling you explain? So that first type is homology modeling. And then the second type is this deep learning approach that AlphaFold innovated with, which was just looking at a database of hundreds of thousands of sequences and what structures those sequences ended up looking like. And it just essentially learned the relationship. And the very first version basically just did that. And it was not super great. It was not better than this Frankenstein homology modeling approach. But when they introduced, essentially took homology modeling techniques and fed that to the deep learning model as well, it, it just rapidly got way, way better, like overnight. Okay. That makes sense. And it's possibly seeing interactions that we can't understand yet. So that's kind of an interesting one. It's, it doesn't tell you about any interactions. And so this is where the, there's a limitation in protein folding. And it was kind of one of these challenges where this challenge was so tough that even though we knew there was more beyond it, we were focusing on it. But now that we've kind of got stuff that works well, the next challenge is understanding the interactions in those like shapes that these, these proteins take on and understanding why those interactions are there and how to exploit them. But the other challenge and the reason why protein folding is not the be all and end all is the analogy I like to draw is of, of you, the human AJ, right? Let's say I'm an alien and I wanted to study you and understand what shape does a human take on? Well, right now you're sitting at a desk. So if I just took a snapshot of you sitting at a desk and showed that to an alien, an alien would be like, okay, that's pretty interesting. But like, what else does he look like? Is it just that? Does he always look like 
this sort of like half folded shape. And then if I give you another snapshot of you lying in bed, that's a dramatically different shape. You're just, you're flat, you know, arms in everywhere versus you standing versus you walking. Now, if I took a snapshot of you walking, that's a really interesting one as well, because it's not particularly insightful in and of itself. It doesn't demonstrate that shape you're taking on in that moment of walking is not a single snapshot the way a picture of you sitting is. But a picture of you sitting right now is fairly representative of the shape that you're going to take on over the next hour. But when you're walking, any single snapshot is like 1% of the, the shapes you're taking over the course of that walk, right? Because you're in constant motion. And this is the same way with proteins. Proteins, you know, there are some proteins that are pretty boring and a single snapshot of them or just a couple of snapshots of them can give you a pretty representative idea of what this thing is going to look like. And there are other proteins that are incredibly dynamic. They're like triathlete proteins and single snapshot they're going to be doing something different every time you'd be like hang on a second well this is a walking protein but actually it's a running protein but actually it's a swimming protein but actually it's a you know it takes on all these different shapes to do all of these different things and so just starting from a sequence and saying what shape does this take on just ontologically it's not a good question to ask because it's not it's like saying what shape does a human take on it's like well that really depends many different shapes Uh, and where human breaks uh, they'll take on a very different bizarre shape than they usually should. And proteins do the same thing. So in the context of drug discovery, you you really care about broken proteins and what shape broken proteins take on, especially compared to the unbroken protein, because that gives you an idea about you know, and how you might fix it. So again, if I, if I just showed a picture of like, an AJ with a broken leg to an alien and that was the only picture it saw, you'd be like, cool, that's what AJ looks like. But if I put that right next to a picture of, of you from a month ago without the broken leg, the alien would be like, oh, hang on a second, there's something different in this area. And, you know, the, the, the AJ with a broken leg can't do all of these things. Maybe it's this area that's causing that. And that's where we can try and go in and fix something. And really, that's, that's what a lot of drug discovery comes down to at a, at a very, very simplified level. Okay. I do want to get to drug discovery. But just before I get into that, and this might be a weird question. How do different proteins have such wildly different emergent properties, right? So for example, you have a digestive enzyme in our saliva, amylase. You have hemoglobin in your blood that's binding to iron. You have insulin that's like a hormone. Like you just have all these different things that are just fundamentally different sequences of different amino acids, which I don't understand. And maybe there isn't a good answer for it. How suddenly they just have such different functions there's a great answer to this there are 20 amino acids and each of them are quite different chemically they look very different and so they will have different chemical reactions with different things but chemistry is a very localized it's highly dependent on your local environment so the same amino acid in a different chemical environment meaning different amino acids nearby will do a very different thing that's just the, the laws of physics you know to continue the analogy and aj in bed by himself at 9 p.m. is going to be very different from an AJ at a New Year's party, right? The environment in which the exact same thing is from a chemical perspective really matters for how it's going to behave. And so really what you care about is the term of art is like a chemo, right? So a some group of amino acids that are near each other or in, in sequence, right? And they're all going to be together in a certain shape near each other. And that's going to determine a lot of the effect. Even if you just had 10 amino acids, and as I was saying before, you can have thousands of amino acids in a protein easily. 
or in a protein complex. That's 20 to the power of 10 possible configurations straight out of the gate, which is something like 10 trillion possible combinations. So given that many proteins are hundreds of amino acids, some protein complexes are thousands of amino acids, you can start to see how so many emergent behaviors come about. You know, even if half of these amino acids all function the same, 10 amino acids in a row still giving you 10 billion different combinations, right? And so if you had, you know, like a hundred amino acids together in a whole protein, like you're talking about more possible configurations of proteins than there are in the universe by, and we're not, it's not even close, right? It's like quintillion times more. And so, yeah, does that answer your question? I think so. So I think what I took away from that was that it's like, if I was to use an analogy, it's kind of like a robot that can have different functions and different sequences of amino acids will have different functions. So if you, let's say, wanted to have a robot with two claws, then you would have that two sequences of amino acids coming together to make that function happen. And those emergent properties just happen by like putting the configurations the right way. So a robot that's perfect for coffee making versus like a crane would be very different, right? There's a, there's a better analogy at that. There are only so many words in the English language, but there are like infinitely many sentences that I could say that all have fundamentally different logical meanings. Like a computer ultimately breaks down to just zeros and ones, but you can express many different intricate programs with just zeros and ones. It's because it's about the combination and how many possible combinations you can express and sort of, you know, amino acid sequences of uh, the, the ones and zeros of life, if you want to take it back that way. Yeah, that makes sense. It did bring back the example, just sort of brought back the memory of like substrate interfaces for like, you know, enzymes, right? Where they need the right kind of shape for the substrate to come and bind. And so, you know, that's, that's a property. As long as like that protein has the right jigsaw puzzle, you know, coded in, then like, you know, the substrate can come and bind, right? And if it doesn't have that, then the protein might do something else, right? So thinking about it from like a components perspective, like if it has the right component, it can do the right thing. But the, sh the shape is necessary, but not sufficient because you could imagine two magnets that are puzzle shapes and they fit together, but if they are opposing magnets. You are never going to be able to squish them together because there are these other forces, and this is sort of the electrochemical force that these yeah. atoms are exerting on each other. So you, you need to be able to model those as well. And sometimes it gets even worse. You have this electrochemical effect as you're getting closer to the protein, and that induces a shape in the protein that suddenly allows you to bind to it. So that if you were just to look at the protein by itself, it would look like you can't bind. As you bring the substrate towards the protein, it starts to wiggle and change and then suddenly can fit and wrap around the substrate. And so this is what I mean by protein folding alone is not enough because even just looking at the, the protein, there are shapes you'll never see it take on unless you look at it with its partners that it usually likes to interact with. Right. Again, to go to the human analogy, I can see all the different shapes that AJ is going to take on over his life. But if I never see him with another human, I'm not going to see him in the hugging shape because he's just, he can't, he's not going to hug himself. Except late at night when no one's watching. Can you quickly explain, I guess, just like to put the definitions out there. What is a protein? What is an enzyme? What is a substrate? Just so everyone's clear. I'm like. An enzyme, an enzyme is a, just a type of protein. So a protein is any molecule that's made of these amino acids. Very small ones are sometimes called peptides. Sometimes if they've got a very specific shape, we'll give them other names. 
but they're ultimately all just made out of amino acid sequences. So enzymes are proteins that have a specific function, which is that they will have some sort of, they will catalyze a chemical reaction in the body, returning one kind of molecule into another. And a substrate is just a word for any molecule that a protein likes to interact with that's not another protein, typically. You know, there's a lot of different, like some people call them ligands, that's also correct. Some people call them small molecules, which is correct sometimes in certain circumstances. But substrate's a nice sort of general term for like the thing that the enzyme wants to attract with. And there are whole different classes of proteins based on sort of certain things that we, we've identified that they do. The kinases will often create energetic interactions based on taking up ATP and, and sort of extracting the energy from the ATP and then doing something with that energy. That's often called a kinase. There are transcription factors, which are proteins that are responsible for reading DNA or, you know, reading instructions off chromosomes and, and RNA molecules. So there's a whole ontology of how to categorize proteins, but I've never really been too interested in that because I, I prefer thinking about the fundamental laws of physics around these proteins and describing them in, in that sort of first principles kind of way, instead of putting them into categories. Because as soon as you put them into categories, you can kind of be surprised by them because you're like, oh, I thought that was an enzyme and enzymes are meant to do this. That's a reversal of the logic, right? You called it an enzyme because it did the thing. It doesn't do the thing because it's an enzyme. And so I find those categories kind of, personally, I find them unhelpful. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That makes sense. Can we talk about drug discovery? So what is the actual process of drug discovery? Are you, can I try and explain what I think it is based on what I've learned so far? I'm guessing it is trying to find broken proteins that are in a shape that shouldn't be that shape and then trying to test drugs against it to bring it to become the normal shape. That's my un like uninformed opinion of what I thought it was. So often a major driver of disease is dysfunctional proteins. It's not always the case though. There are many, many different ways to do drug discovery. So we can discuss here drug discovery based on like structural biology, which is typically protein centric. But there are many things in your body that can go wrong. Not all of them are proteins. Sometimes it's DNA, sometimes it's RNA. What are some examples of protein structure diseases? Cancer is a really big one. So typically what happens in a cancer is a protein will mutate and that mutation causes the cell to do something that it doesn't typically do and that results in cancer. So it's sort of like a, a gain in function or sometimes a loss in function that's caused by you know a genetic mutation sometimes so obviously if, if, if your gene is different the protein is going to be different and so you can fix the broken protein by trying to fix the gene and that's what the immune sort of sickle cell anemia treatments they went in with crispr cas9 and they have actually edited the gene so that it no longer produces the bad protein in the first place but a lot of the time we don't do that a lot of the time what we do is we 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 see this protein and one of the most common cases is that this protein has gained some function. So it's not doing something that it shouldn't be doing, or it's doing too much of what it normally does. And this is upsetting the balance of the cell, and that's ultimately exhibiting in, in a disease. And what we try to do is we try to create these molecules that will bind to the protein and interrupt that function. So we call them inhibitors because they inhibit the function of the protein. And so you can think about a protein that, you know, it's like a little Pac-Man is coming along and it's doing its thing. And this thing is something you don't want it to be doing. And so you get a molecule and you jam it in there and then it stops being out of move and it doesn't do the thing anymore. And that is like a super basic sort of description of, of what it is that a lot of small molecule therapies are trying, trying to do. 
as opposed to gene therapies, which try to edit the gene to further upstream. But that whole process is, is incredibly complicated. Some proteins aren't about inhibiting them. So sometimes proteins lose functionality and you're trying to figure out how to give them that functionality back. And that's a really tough challenge. So what you're trying to do there is you're trying to say, well, my protein usually looks like this. And this thumb maybe causes, it gives it some ability, but there's a disease that's causing this thumb to be folded across like this. And now it can't do the thing that it usually does. And that's making me upset for the human. And so you try to put a molecule in here that's going to induce an effect in the protein that brings this back out and kind of allows it to get on with this normal business. So that's when you're trying to restore function to a protein. And that's incredibly challenging. It's significantly more challenging than inhibiting a protein. But you can see when you're trying to get molecules to interact, the very first question you ask is, what do my molecules look like? If I tell them what they look like, how can I possibly hope to model how they're going to interact with each other? And that's why the protein folding problem, or one of the reasons why the protein folding problem was such a big thing for the industry to, to figure out. Why is, why is there so many protein folding companies using quantum? Like what, what about quantum make protein folding more accessible or easier? Like what's the relationship between the two things? Well, everything obeys the laws of quantum mechanics. And so if you aren't considering the laws of quantum mechanics, you're simplifying something that's unavoidable. Otherwise you've discovered some new fundamental law. And the same is true of proteins. So if you want to truly perfectly model how a protein is going to move and how it's going to fold and how it's going to move once it's folded into that shape, in principle, you do need to consider the laws of quantum mechanics. I wouldn't say it makes it more accessible. There are very few companies that have the computational might to actually solve these quantum mechanical equations at the scale of proteins. Most people are stuck with just a few hundred atoms at most. And in a protein with a few hundred amino acids, you're talking about a few thousand atoms. And these algorithms usually scale like into the fifth or into the seventh. So they're, they're really, really inefficient. But what people do often do is that when you take a picture of a protein through like X-ray crystallography or cryo-EM, which is sort of like the physical way to measure what a protein looks like. Incredibly challenging, incredibly error prone, but you know, you can spend six months and $60,000 trying to capture this little picture of a protein and, and it's, and get nothing. I've been there. It's a painful process. And you don't get something that's super high resolution. Sometimes you get something that's like two whole hydrogen atoms, you know, each, each atom that you have an idea about where it is could be up to the width of two hydrogen atoms away from where you actually think it is. That's a significant change in like the shape. And so what people will do is they'll take that blurry picture and they'll use quantum mechanics to try and refine that picture and figure out if we started here in this blurry mode and we let it simulate for a little while quantum mechanically, you know, where does it settle? Does it settle into a certain shape? That's the most common use for quantum mechanics and protein folding. There are some companies plugging myself here that have figured out ways to run quantum mechanics at insanely high speeds. And so as you're pushing the boundaries, trying to use quantum mechanics more broadly for more problems and exploring you know, ways to do those kinds of dynamics that aren't just looking at optimizing structures. So when you say quantum mechanics, like processes kick in, like, I mean, one that comes to mind is probably, there's probably quantum tunneling voltage happening at those sizes, right? Like, no? Mostly it's dispersion. So how the electrons get dispersed across different, different chemical motifs. And dispersion forces are very, very hard to model without 
doing a full quantum mechanical simulation because it's just about how electrons want to move and that's this whole argument about the probabilistic nature of electrons and that is just you describe that quantum mechanically that's what what it is and dispersion forces are a major part of what holds proteins together it's a major part of how rings interact so when you get these chemical rings and a lot of proteins have these ring shapes all over them a whole series of different amino acids will have these rings in them there's a there's a phenomenon called pi stacking which is where as a protein folds back over itself several times and these rings will stack up into like these columns and these dispersion forces hold them in place and that gives the protein a lot of structure so these kinds of chemical effects are very very hard to model if you don't use quantum mechanics they're hard to model accurately in general. yeah that makes sense interesting yeah i think i think i have a fairly good understanding of protein folding i'm like looking at some proteins right now and they look crazy like just the vast types of shapes that are out there and the things that can happen like looking at an antibody actually i'll, I'll share my screen where is this got a got an insulin over here an antibody over there I don't even know what the other ones are. Alcohol? I don't know what that means. It removes it removes the hydrogen of the alcohol molecule. This one I know really well. Hemoglobin, the alpha chains, your beta chains, got a heme molecule in the middle. That that studied that in depth. Everything else, no clue. There are too many to know what each one does. So you can do an entire life's worth of research on a single protein to learn how it works and how it moves and the different effects that it has. And- very rarely, again, it's, it's categorical, right? So like often we'll say, oh, you know, this alcohol dehydrogenase, we've given it that name and we've categorized it because we see it doing this thing. And then someone will suddenly see that it does something else too. And then you're left with this like weird edge case. You're like, okay, yeah, hydrogenases do this, but there are also some hydrogenases that also do this. And it's like this whole ontological categorization thing just doesn't make any sense. Many proteins will have many functions in the cell. And that's one of the hardest things. So when you take a drug and you get that long list of side effects, what, what that... What that's from is that we put this small molecule inside you. It inhibits the protein. But that protein does more than just the thing that we're trying to inhibit it from doing. We actually maybe stop it from doing other things too. That's called on-target side effects. So it's the target itself, the thing that you're actually trying to drug. By drugging it, you're causing other side effects. Then there's off-target side effects, which is that there's something like 200,000 different proteins in the human body, different types, trillions of them. But the, that small molecule definitely binds to another protein that, that it ideally wouldn't bind to. But we can't possibly model all 200,000 of these proteins and figure out exactly which one it is and come up with a chemical that you know, only binds to one and not the other. And sometimes that's not even physically possible. Like you, you, you cannot have that level of selectivity just because maybe two proteins are so similar in that area that by definition, drugging one of them means you're, you're also going to hit the other. And so that's called off-target side effect. And... That's really what's happening. You know, when you get that long list of like, <laughs> you take this, this drug that's possibly going to have these side effects is, is essentially saying that, you know, chances are this drug is having some kind of effect on the protein that wasn't anticipated and we, we didn't get around to measuring, but we generally realized that in humans it doesn't kill you. So we're pretty happy with that or that it's hitting something that it shouldn't hit and causing an effect there. Awesome. Any final thoughts on protein folding or anything else you want to impart to the, to me and the audience? I wanted to, no, it's not even a shout out because it's such a massive group that they don't need a shout out, but Baker's, like David Baker's group, the Institute of Protein Design is an insane lab when you actually dive into it. It's got a hundred people, which is just huge for a single PI. 
And they've got nine spin-outs, which have raised collectively hundreds of millions of dollars. I think their most recent one, Charm Therapeutics, was $50 million alone in just at Series A. These companies are absolute powerhouses in protein engineering. And so what the Baker Lab has figured out how to do is they've, they've built this thing called the Rosetta Commons, which is, as I touched on, is this like utility of all these tools used for protein folding, for protein design, protein diffusion. And they've realized that there are certain use cases that like specific use cases that are helpful for drug discovery or synthetic biology. And each time they find one, they just spin out a company and raise such millions of dollars. It's, it's a really beautiful engine for how one can take fundamental basic science like structural biology and translate that into results in the industry. I mean, it's drug discovery, so it will take 10 years before we see those results, but they'll be there. What was the thing that you said? The Rosetta Commons? Rosetta Commons, yeah. Oh, okay. It's a sort of like set of libraries, as we call them in the industry, for doing all different kinds of functions. And you can access them for free if you're an academic. You cannot if you're a commercial institute, and that's because Baker likes to create his own commercial groups. If someone wants to start working in um, protein folding, how would you recommend they get started? What was your learning pathway? Go play with AlphaFold. That's probably the most successful one. Go explore RCSB and read up on the different proteins and look at their shapes and just like find words that you don't understand and then go look up those words on Wikipedia. And yeah, I guess just play with it. Also, I guess maybe, yeah, I, that's, that's probably the best starting point. Okay. Any, anything else you want to address before we wrap up? I think we touched on a lot, maybe too much. <laughs> Awesome. All right, guys, you know what time it is. It is the technocratic earth. We do this work because Long's, Long's time's worth about 5,000 hour minus $5. So 5,005. He put in a couple of hours in. So let's say five, $25,000 worth of value. I put in 30 minutes for this source packet. So let's throw in $2.50. That's a lot of value. <laughs> and, and you don't have to pay anything for it. All you have to do is take the technocratic earth, which means that you are saying that you are going to like, subscribe, sign up for for um, Spotify and, and, you know, give us a review there. Just do everything you can to just shill us to everyone you can, you can think of. And because every time you share this podcast with someone else, you just sound smarter, right? If you say that you're listening to a podcast called Technocracy and they just did an episode on protein folding, you just sound smarter. So if you want to look good in front of your friends, tell everyone about it. And uh, yeah, that's the technocratic growth. I'll see you guys later. Bye.